key to life. Hello, this is Sekou Burmese, your host of The Lit Review, a podcast brought to you by the Academy of Management Journal. In this podcast, we dive into the insights of recent research published in the Academy of Management Journal. In every episode, we interview authors and corporate leaders to discuss the inspiration for research ideas and how insights from this research applies to current pressing issues in organizations and markets. Today, we have a fantastic guest. Thomas Lawrence was a professor of business at the University of Oxford. In our conversation today, we talk about how organizations can impact some of the most important challenges that we face in society, these grand challenges. Throughout our history, formal organizations have been a driver of immensely important economic, political, and social accomplishments. Many organizations today, in fact, are attempting to fight the daunting task of trying to address some of society's grand challenges. In a recent published paper at AMJ, Tom investigated this phenomenon and asked, how organizations can import practices that are considered bad in attempts to solve an important social problem. The results are intriguing and also speak to the broader theme of how controversial practices can be transformed when they're taken from one context to another. Tom also shares some of his observations about the global and local trends he sees in the field of social innovation. And lastly, we talk about how his research might have aligned with one of the greatest television shows in U.S. history. I hope you will enjoy this episode of The Lit Review and my discussion with Thomas Lawrence. Tom Lawrence is a professor of strategic management at the Said Business School at the University of Oxford. Tom's research focuses on how organizations and individuals shape major change in highly contested domains such as healthcare, the natural environment, addiction, and homelessness. In particular, His research shows the importance of social institutions, those widely held beliefs and values, in both facilitating and constraining social innovation and change. Hello, Tom, and welcome to the Lit Review Podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start out by discussing a paper that you published in 2017 in the Academy of Management Journal entitled High Stakes Institutional Translation. Establishing North America's first government-sanctioned supervised injection site. And uh, just the title is enough to to grab uh, eyeballs. Uh, and so we'll get into what exactly you found. Um, but the paper, uh, I think, asks a really interesting question about how organizations deal with resolving or attempting to resolve some of these grand challenges that we face, these societal problems. And in the case here, this is drug treatment. And so I'm curious, what got you interested in this topic? And how did you arrive at the specific tension of institutional translation as something to investigate? This was a paper that was a long time in gestation to publication. Its origins really come out of a couple of different places for me. One was that I'd been interested in and doing research on how social change happens and the role of institutions in that process for quite a while. Um, I was working with colleagues uh, for a long time, particularly Nelson Phillips, Cynthia Hardy, and Steve McGuire. And we've been looking at uh, social change that occurred primarily through interorganizational collaboration and in similarly uh, contested, politicized kinds of contexts. And so I was sensitized to those kinds of contexts and interested in them. Mm -hmm. The second place it came from was I moved universities 
in 2002 from University of Victoria to Simon Fraser in Vancouver. Hmm. And I was looking around for an empirical context to study and Insight, which is the supervised injection site that was the focus of the study, opened in 2003, a year after I, I arrived. Hmm. And I became aware of it then just really as a, you know, through the newspapers, as a member of the kind of general public. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really any, know anything about addictions treatment, uh, but was intrigued by mm-hmm. the event. Uh, and, and actually, the actual facility, the physical facility, Insight, was a 15-minute walk from my office at the business school. Hmm. which made it both interesting and convenient, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I could just walk down there. And I don't know if you've been to, are you been to Vancouver? Yeah, um, yeah, for the Academy of Management. Uh, yeah, yeah. A few and actually times. for the book when we uh, did the oh, book Of together. course, yes, yes. And anyway, the the Vancouver is a, an interesting place in this regard in that the business school is in the heart of the kind of downtown core financial area Mm. of Vancouver. It's pretty new buildings, lots of glass, shiny. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, you see pictures of Vancouver that kind of emphasize that aspect of it. But if you walk 10 minutes east from the business school, you walk into a whole different world, uh, Mm. which is the downtown east side, which is one of the poorest, least healthy postal codes in Canada. Mm. Um, it's a long storied uh, neighborhood that has a real neighborhood feel to it, but a lot of social problems. Mm. And that was really the heart of the story of Insight and the supervised injection site, where the kind of dynamics that were going on in the downtown east side, really just a 10 minute walk from my office. Yeah. And I, you know, so I grew up in New York City. And so I'm intimately aware of just the weird juxtaposition of wealth and social ills and social problems that can be sometimes a block, two blocks away from one another. And it's really a stark contrast. And so you're moving and relocating here, seeing this, hearing about it, I guess, and, you know, being a curious social scientist, you're like, well, maybe there's something here. Um, and so uh, you went in and, and what did you find uh, in your in your research? The research was focused on understanding how the supervised injection site came to be opened in the sense that on the one hand it was quite straightforward it was a health facility that was run by the local health uh, regional health authority mm-hmm. and they had the authority to do it but there was a really long 10-year process mm-hmm. that led to the opening of that uh, facility eventually and and it emerged from an opioid I mean right now we talk about opioid, epidemics and the epidemic of overdoses that's occurring both in Canada and the U.S. This was a similar but actually smaller scale epidemic that occurred decades before currently the the current problems. Mm -hmm. And But there was a period in which there's a long, long period in which uh, overdose deaths from opioids both in Canada and the U.S., they occurred, but at a relatively low level in terms yeah. of incident rates. Yep. And then there was a spike that occurred in the 1980s mm-hmm. when uh, some of the drugs that came particularly from Asia changed, and and that triggered a whole set of deaths um, yep. and a kind of crisis in the community uh, that was around uh, drug user populations uh, mm-hmm. as they saw friends and family dying from the use of these drugs. And so what I traced was the process from that epidemic and kind of crisis in the community to the opening of this 
supervised injection site. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, so that the question was really, how did this thing open? And so the first finding was really that, well, this thing was really the end result of the opening or the social construction, at least, of waves of supervised injection sites prior to the government-sanctioned site, Mm -hmm. Mm. um, which included nine different physical sites, including illegal sites, uh, demonstration sites, Mm -hmm. uh, a site in the basement of a church, Mm. a site that never opened, that was was constructed by a um, a local NGO, and then also the discursive construction of supervised injection sites in a whole series of uh, reports that were government and NGO and interorganizational reports that were uh, developed, trying to kind of describe and articulate what this thing would be and mm-hmm. what we would mean by a supervised injection site. Because the the basic technology, if you like, is incredibly simple. It's sure. a room with nurses uh, and some... Uh, almost like cubicles and from a library yep. where a drug user can sit um, and safely inject so that if they overdose, there's someone there that can help them. And that's that's mm-hmm. all it is. Um, mm-hmm. But it's the embedding of that yeah. very simple technology in a community that is the challenge uh, that they, they had to overcome. And so all of these intermediate sites, if you like, yep. were kind of attempts to understand, well, what would that embedding look like Mm -hmm. Um, who Mm -hmm. would run it how would it run where would it be located what would be the relationship to police to the health system uh, to the courts to the municipality and so on yeah so that was one and the the, the second finding uh which is much more general i think is that this this articulation physical and discursive of the supervised injection site evolved in complexity over the six or eight years that that these experiments were going on. And it evolved in a sort of co-evolutionary way with the social network that was sponsoring and constructing it. And so initially, we saw very simple sites uh, opened by individuals on an illegal basis or articulated in terms of a very simple set of ideas by individuals. And that morphed into more complex constructions by groups and ultimately into the this government-sanctioned site, which in some sense it was government-sanctioned and run, but it was really the product of a complex interorganizational network which allowed it to become embedded in the way I was talking about so that it had an explicit relationship to the justice system, to the health system, mm-hmm. to the city, uh, to the drug user network, to yep. researchers, and so on. Yeah. So that the simple technology could actually be uh, robust in some way. Yeah. So uh, two things as you were describing that, that immediately jump out uh, to me. Um, and the first is academic, and the second one is more less academic. So the first one that uh, really jumps out at me is this I guess this idea that to make change that's truly transformational is not straightforward. Even if the, like you said, the technology is straightforward. Hey, what do we need to reduce these deaths? We need a place people can go and safely do this. That's the easy part. And then people do it and then they run into normally a Mack truck of, well, what does this mean for this? And all these other unintended kind of linkages. And so a lot of what 
you know, I took from the paper is that, hey, even if the technology to make something better is simple, the structure around it so that everyone understands and everyone can relate to it in a way that doesn't make them uncomfortable is where a majority of the work ends up being, right? Like years and years just to allow this very simple technology that we know is going to help reduce death to become, to be able to flourish, right? And so I, I took from that a lot. And I think, you know, and I want to ask you after I say this non-academic thing about what does that mean, you know, more largely, because I know you think about these things a lot. The second is, have you ever seen the show The Wire? Sure. Okay. So are you familiar with Hamsterdam episode or the Hamsterdam plot? Okay, you'll have to remind me. All right, well, yeah, I mean, it was 2004. So it's crazy just because I, I read this and I said, oh, he collected this data as the writers for The Wire were writing this script. Um, and so in it, in essence, this is in Baltimore and they're dealing with a huge drug problem. And so one of the uh, police officers says, we should set up a safe zone where we will not prosecute using and we will not prosecute selling, right? So it was a, it was a, a, a zone and... It was, you know, a, a moment of clarity from this. This one lieutenant had been fighting this war on drugs for so long. He's like, we should set it up. And they called, tried to call it Amsterdam, but people didn't understand. So they called it Hamsterdam. And uh, it was simple and the technology simple. And it was a monumental failure in the show because no one could make sense of, well, if you're the police and we're here to stop and you're, we're letting it happen, then who are we? Then what are we doing? And it was just people's inability to understand what was happening in the show and it mimics a lot of what I think you're finding in this. So I, I was wondering if you were a consulting writer for The Wire, or if David <laughs> no, Simon uh, reached out I, to you. No, I do, actually do remember that episode now. <laughs> um, and I had the same feeling. I mean, it, it's fascinating. The One of the dynamics that occurred in Vancouver was absolutely the connection needing to be negotiated between the idea of a supervised injection site, the people that would run it, mm -hmm. and the role that the police would play mm -hmm. in facilitating it because they needed to be on board. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, like in the U.S., there are multiple levels of police. And I think, um, as sometimes happens in the U.S. as well, the different levels have very different relationships to local activity and sure. people. Sure. And so... In Canada, there's the RCMP and there's the not the Vancouver City Police. Mm -hmm. And the Vancouver City Police were intimately connected to the city in a way that the RCMP was not, even though both played a role. Yep. And so there was a there was a kind of process where they had to get police uh, both at the level of the leadership, which in some ways was easier, mm -hmm. but also the rank and file police sure. officers to get sure. on board sure. and not prosecute people not just within uh, the supervised injection site, obviously, because mm -hmm. they had a, an exemption, but the minute you stepped out of the injection site yeah, sure. uh, or on your way to it, you're going to be holding. Yeah. And so you couldn't have police sort of thinking, okay, this is circling fantastic. around. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We will uh -huh. just kind of wait outside and arrest everyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so they had to be on board that this was going to work. And that took a lot of, uh, I think courage by the police force, mm -hmm. by the leadership of them, mm -hmm. and then also really strong negotiations between the police and the city in reaching yeah. that kind of agreement. And the other, one of the difficult issues around, like you say, getting your head around it was actually also for the drug users. Drug users had to trust 
all these groups that they normally would not trust and that they've been very badly served by in the past. And so that took a lot of reconstruction of identities on the part of a lot of people in relationship mm-hmm. to what this problem was. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a real transformation. I mean, and the basic transformation in some ways was from the social construction of drug addiction as a criminal problem to a health problem. Yeah. And the, so the response being a criminal justice response moving to a health response. Yeah. And I think we see this was the front end of a larger movement where now that is more and more the case, particularly in North America, where decriminalization of of, of drug use and, and, and drug possession and more kind of money or at least attention being paid to protecting no, people from, from getting in. And no, one, of, one of the interesting things that spun out of not my study, but the process was that a lot of people who got involved weren't addictions people per se when they went into the process. They were people interested in the community and making change, mm-hmm. but they became much more aware of and sophisticated around issues around drug use and addiction. And a lot of them moved from worrying about uh, safe consumption sites and treatment to issues of regulation and deregulation or, or regulation mm-hmm. and moving to regulated markets and decriminalization mm-hmm. and because mm-hmm. they could see that the systemic problem was really the regulatory problem and that all a lot of these other problems kind of flowed from that so you know if we can so this this is interesting we could talk about this paper for a long time but i do <laughs> want to uh extract out a bit um and so this idea of institutional translations you talk about the the taking of a practice that is either controversial and moving it from one space to another. And this is, you know, some might say this is the definition of what innovation is, right? And this is a social innovation, which is an area. But, you know, there are other examples of this that have caught your eye that you think about um, regarding injection sites, you know, was, was the one that you looked at for this paper. But do you think there are lessons learned from this idea of institutional translation that maybe can help us understand other sorts of uh, events that are currently unfolding now? I think so. Mm -hmm. I think that if you look at issues around health in general, then what you see when you compare jurisdictions around the world often is in part differences in economic resources and technologies that are available to people. Mm -hmm. But particularly, I think you see differences in values that are driving decisions that are less about technology and more about how people determine their own health health outcomes um, and the relationship, for instance, between individual health and public health. Mm -hmm. And so we were talking about COVID before um, we came onto this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think um, COVID really made transparent a lot of the challenges and questions about the translation of different very simple technologies across jurisdictions and across sort of value and cultural sort of boundaries Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and things as simple as masking um the use of vaccinations which i mean obviously the construction of a vaccination is a complex technology but the implementation of a vaccine is not yeah Uh, what's what's complex about the implementation of a vaccine is the social context in which it's embedded. And so when we see in um, the UK, for instance, where we look at the incidences of vaccination that are the lowest, they're not surprisingly among populations with the lowest trust of government institutions in general. Sure. 
And that trust is, uh, that low level of trust has been earned by the government over yeah. a very long time. Yeah. And, and so it can't magically go away. Yeah. And the reactions to people who are vaccine hesitant in this country is a very individualizing one, as if sure. those people are stupid or ill-informed or uneducated. Yeah. But in fact, what they have is a very different relationship to the social structures mm. that you know are offering vaccines. And, yeah. and so I think, you know, very similarly that when we think about the movement of innovations, whether it's masking innovations or vaccines or injection sites, we have to be very attendant to the histories and cultures of the people that are involved and make sure that what we're not doing is trying to kind of diagnose frictions in a way that's really kind of a fundamental attribution error in terms of mm-hmm. looking at individuals um, mm-hmm. and try and take into account these these cultural, social, political, structural context as well. Yeah. The, the paper I did was a little bit about that in terms of it was the evolution of that context. Sure. Um, but even then, even in the most progressive North American cities, there's still a lot of struggle over the appropriate framing and understanding of drug use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, marijuana and cannabis use is, you know, is one uh, issue. Yeah. Um, but then there are a lot of drugs and, and a lot of harm is being done by the, by drug use that's unregulated mm-hmm. and it's unregulated significantly because the history of drug use is associated with issues of race and class um, yeah. that have to be incorporated in any kind of response to it. Yeah. I realize this, this is well outside of a kind of an organizational lens. I think that uh, there are a lot of organizations and a lot of entrepreneurs now that are motivated to be a part of how do you engender better trust between institutions and end users? And how do you you know, make some movement on some of these topics? How do you go about convincing people to change the way that they approach certain problems? And I mean, for a lot of folks, I'm in a business school, you're in a business school, you know, I have a lot of students that are like, hey, the answers are here in business. We know marketing, we know persuasion, we know strategy, we know all these things. Can we apply them to some of these social problems in a way? And so in, in that in that way, I think the idea of social innovation, which is just really taken off uh, in, in, in the field, I don't know about how things are at, at Oxford, but here at UNC, it's, it's one of the most popular kind of topics. And I think it's for that reason. I think it's exactly for that reason. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think one of the things that's really been useful that I've seen change over the last decade or so in talking about social entrepreneurship and social innovation mm-hmm. is a recognition on the part of the people interested in, in those doing startups or small enterprises, the need to integrate them into systems and the need for thinking about social innovation from a systemic change perspective rather than just introducing a technology. I mean, the history of things like international development, but also health uh, innovation are littered with good ideas that have failed because they are not integrated into systemic level kinds of understandings of the frictions and the need for change at that level. Yeah, I love this. It's a simple technology but the uh, putting it into a, a social context is really complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. 
So to pivot a bit about uh, your research, because um, I've known you and your work for quite some time, and I've always been a fan. And one of the things that has always struck me is you have some amazing field sites. You do your research in some pretty interesting places. You know, this this current paper we've been talking about is a perfect example. I think there might be other academics or researchers that are also interested in doing this kind of work inspired by you and, and some of your co-authors. Do you have any advice on uh, folks that are trying to blend research or things that they're trying to do with addressing kind of grand challenges in places that maybe aren't commonly looked? These are not S&P 500 kind of context that you you tend to gravitate towards. So any advice uh, on on navigating that? Well, I'll start with the, the good news on that front, which is one of the, I think one of the reasons in some ways that my colleagues and I moved into this, these spaces in the first place, in part was our interest in social change, our interest in progressive kinds of movements, but also, practically speaking, as an academic, access to these kinds of organizations and these kinds of issues Mm -hmm. is often much easier Mm -hmm. than access to large corporations or large professional service firms or large government agencies where you need to get organization-level permissions to sure. go in and do interviewing. Sure. I, I've never had to do that. Um, when I you wanted, just show up with clipboard? I just show up. I, I'm Tom. How are you doing? I interview people about uh, in the downtown east side. I walk into the downtown east side. I look for individuals. I call individuals. And that's who I talk to. And, mm-hmm. and, and, that's, and so the friction is very low. The barriers are very low on that front. But mm-hmm. also... The people that we've studied, whether it was in HIV or in housing or in addictions, they mostly want to tell their story. Mm-hmm. These are people who are trying to change the world, and they know that a part of how you change the world is telling your story to lots of different people. Yeah. And they recognize that telling an academic is not going to get the word out immediately. It's not the same as doing a newspaper interview or a TV interview, but they're articulate they know how to tell their story. Mm-hmm. They're used to telling it. They understand that their organizations need to be permeable. Yeah. Uh, and we're a part of that kind of boundary spanning role for them. And so I've I've found it incredibly easy for the most part to, yeah. to get access. So that's a really practical reason. And, and in fact, if there are doctoral students listening, when you are short on time in term, and you need to get access, not-for-profits, NGOs, social movements, those kinds of spaces mm-hmm. are going to welcome you often much more easily than corporate spaces are going to. Yeah. So that's that's one piece. Yeah. The other piece I would say is they're not just organizations that you're entering into. These are really worlds that you're entering into, mm-hmm. worlds that have uh, cultures and language and history, uh, networks, and you have to be very respectful of those elements. And you have yeah. to really understand that when you go into a space where there's a really serious problem that people are trying to grapple with, whether it's a health problem, a justice problem, or something else, mm-hmm. you need to do the homework ahead of time so that you are not simply a dilettante going in like a tourist. Mm. You know? Now, you will be a little bit always at the beginning, yep. but especially these days, you can do a lot of work ahead of time. 
Yep. Uh, you can do research, you can read, you can go in knowing the history of the NGO that you are interviewing someone in yeah. so that you're not simply asking them questions you could have just looked up. On the and website, yeah. I think that really is an obligation for people going into these because mm. uh, these people are busy, often not well paid, uh, often trying to address questions that they think are incredibly important. Sure. And they're happy to talk to you if you also treat it that way. All right. So before I let you go, I want to ask two questions and I ask uh, all of my guests here on the Lit Review. The first is, I look at our role as social scientists, uh, looking at phenomenon, trying to understand it, right? Trying to observe things that we don't understand. Are there any events that are currently unfolding, any things that have piqued your curiosity that maybe we don't understand well and we could stand to understand a little bit better? There is one issue which I'm not studying sure that's even Um, better because then you're truly curious (laughs) well i really am curious and it's a really big one and i don't know what to do about it the question is how are organizations and consequently organization scholars playing a role or going to play a role in addressing the global costs of nationalism and fragmentation more generally and regionalism as well that Mm -hmm. I think we've seen over the past couple of decades, following Trump, but even before Trump, mm-hmm. the increase in protectionism, in nationalism, factionalism, tribalism, yeah. and movements away from what was at one point and in my life uh, understood as a kind of uh, imperative toward globalization. Sure. So when I was a, a relatively young business school academic, I think we all thought liberalism, globalization uh, had won um, mm-hmm. and that there were just going to be increasing connections between regions, between societies, between groups. Yeah. Uh, and then we saw things like um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, mm-hmm. uh, the end of apartheid as signals that this was inevitable. Yeah. And what we've seen since then is the opposite. Mm. We've seen fragmentation and nationalism emerging and the disconnection of groups, both within countries and the polarization of groups within countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think as a consequence, what you see are governments, both national, local, and to some extent transnational, all failing mm. in their role as connectors. Yeah. And so the question becomes, if they're not going to do it, if governments are going to pander to localist or factionalist or tribalist or racist kinds of motives, mm-hmm. then how is the, either the private sector, or, private sector or civil society organizations mm-hmm. going to step in and provide the connective tissue that's going to be necessary mm-hmm. so that the benefits of globalization, and I'm not saying there are not costs to it, but yeah. so that the benefits of globalization are still manifest. Yeah. And I don't have an answer to that. I don't even know how to study it. Um, (laughs) But it seems like a major, major issue that has many, many threads to it that would potentially provide the seed for a lot of research from an organizational perspective. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you talk to truly global companies and you feel like, oh, when when they're within the company, you you recognize that because they have to be interdependent with one another across 
country boundaries, there's just a level of civility, of unity that's there, right? And so there's, you know, and I'm not proposing this as a hypothesis, but there's some sense that these transnational, these global corporations are in some ways trying to keep and hold that together in their own certain ways, right? For 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 better or for worse. But um I think at the local level, civil level, yeah, there's a there's a ton of um opportunity there. And I think there are people who are trying and experimenting. And it'll be it'd be good to know how they're doing and what's successful, what hasn't been successful and the like. All right, that's great. Uh, I I knew teeing you up for that question, I was gonna get something good. All right. <laughs> All right. And then the last one, this is a fun one. Um, what is something that you are reading right now for fun? So no academic stuff, no boring stuff. What's the stuff you're reading that's just tickling your fancy? I'm a, a steady, slow novel reader. Um, mm-hmm. And typically nothing to do with our academic worlds. And so I was thinking about that question. I knew you were going to ask. And, and so the book I would point to is a book called Bewilderment by Richard Powers, and my pitch for it is in some sense the counter to the question I just asked about globalization and localization, because Bewilderment is a beautifully written small story of a father and a son mm-hmm. uh, and their evolution together. And mm-hmm. I won't say anything more than that, but it's really this kind of a very intimate, small, mm. uh, beautifully crafted story. So it's, mm. uh, again, Bewilderment by Richard Powers. That's Bewilderment. My, All right. That sounds intriguing. I think you, you've you set it up very nicely. Uh, the publisher would be, would be pleased <laughs> with how you uh, described it. Well, Tom, thank you uh, so much. On a personal note, uh, you, the, you mentioned the conference back in... 2007 seven yeah sounds six, right yeah. uh that you did putting that that book chapter together. that was probably one of the first times i as a phd student uh got to sit in a room and 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 talk to what at that time you know my view or just you know the 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 the, the tops of, of the field in institutional theory and I learned so much. I talk about that all the time with my doctoral students because I learned so much just sitting around listening to Royston and Art Stinchcomb was there and Paul Hurt, you know, all these people talk about problems and see how how driven they were to still answer questions, despite the fact that they were very senior and prominent people. And so I think you have you have demonstrated that in your own work that you remain very committed uh despite your your status. Uh, atop our field uh, to answer these really important questions. And so thank you for the time uh, today and uh, enjoy the rest of your, your day. Thank you very much. And and I felt the same way when I got your email, Seiko. I just thought, oh, that was so fun talking to you way back then that I'm sure this will be fun as well. So thanks for doing this. This is a great initiative. All right. That's it for the Lit Review. I appreciate Tom for his time and I appreciate you all for listening. If you like this episode, Please subscribe to the Lit Review podcast. You can find us by searching The Lit Review, an AMJ podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and other platforms, as well as on the AMJ homepage. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we have a weekly Twitter Spaces show called AMJ Radio Live, hosted by AOM Connect. I will be joining the show once a month to provide a behind-the-scenes look at the podcast and also answer any listener questions. Thanks to the Academy of Management for their support of this podcast. Special thanks, of course, to my producer, Holly Fearing, for all of her work behind the scenes. Our theme music is produced by Key to Life. This is Sekou Burmese. See you next time. Take care and be good. <laughs>